Welcome, everyone, to a new edition of BAMS Radio. I am your host, Drew DeArmond, along with co-host and producer extraordinaire, Thomas the Wizard Watts, and of course, our third compatriot, William Redfish Barger, from 89 to 93, a member of the Crimson Tide and a 1992 national champion, my favorite team due to my uh, growing up as a much younger man. Uh, that's uh, my first national championship as, as someone that uh, was following it closely then. Of course, they won it twice when I was very, very young, but the 92 group will always have a special place in my heart. And so it's always great to have William along for the ride with us. We're a little bit later in the week this week, but Alabama didn't play last week. So we really didn't have a lot to talk about on Sunday. And now we wanted to make sure, are they going to take the field again on Saturday? It certainly looks like that's the case against the Kentucky Wildcats. It's going to be nearly three weeks since we've seen the Tide. So this is almost like a mini spring practice or fall camp. It's like the season's really restarting. It's very strange, but this whole year, has been uh, just uh, off the uh, off the rails. So what should we we shouldn't be shocked by any of this. But again, uh, we are here for it to talk with you tonight and bring you some Alabama football talk. And uh, great to be with everyone tonight. And William, uh, great to uh, you know uh, catch up. But this has been a season unlike any other. The University of Alabama. You know, we we hear they're going to be without some players this week due to COVID. Most of the team has already had it. From what I'm hearing, it's not going to be any starters. The depth may be affected. But I'm going to be really interested to see how rusty the University of Alabama is after uh, the, uh, I thought, their best total performance as a football team in the shutout over Mississippi State three weeks ago nearly. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of side with, uh, you know, one of our, you know, main hit pieces, Drew, uh, Miller Forrestal. You know, I, I think he's kind of, um, you know, been appreciative of, of the break and, and, and you know, the, the COVID cancellations and stuff. It's allowed him to heal up a little bit. And, you know, when you play a, um all-SEC schedule, I mean, I think this is something you have to look at from the player's perspective. I mean, it's, you know, th- th- that's a tough schedule. And, uh you know, you're going to be beat up and banged up. There's going to be, you know, sore joints and muscles and stuff. But, uh, you know, I mean, I hope this game goes off on Saturday at, at what, 3 p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and then we got uh, Auburn and Tennessee at 6. I mean, I hope that goes off and, um, you know, everybody relaxes a little bit. I mean, you know, this this COVID situation seems to be the – uh, you know, I can tell tell you what it is for me. Um, I think it was Monday morning. Um, I was driving from my house to the gym, and I've got three different Fox News channels um, on my serious, you know, radio subscription that I've got. And, you know, I, I hit one of them, it was COVID. I hit the next one, it was COVID. I hit the third one, it was COVID. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not listening to this stuff. You know, I don't ever listen to jocks, but I turned it on to jocks. And they were going to a commercial break. And they said, you know, come back with us after the commercial break, and we're going to have Auburn's coach, you know, Gus Malzahn, talking to us about Auburn's COVID situation. And I was like, good Lord. You know, there, there's no way to escape this. Um you know, I, I just think that it's been way too politicized. It's been way, you know, you know, thrown into mainstream America's face. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. You know, the masks, the face shields, all this other stuff. You know, let's just get back to playing some football. Yeah, and William, one thing that I've heard, and I was uh, – this was this past uh, – in the past several days, is that, uh, I, you know, really honestly – they haven't even proven that anyone's caught COVID by playing football against each other in, in the contact sport. And so I just, to me, that's crazy. I mean, and, and to, and to continue to say it's not safe, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I think, and we've already talked about this on the show for a while. I, it, honestly, the kids and, uh, and even the coaches, everyone else, you're probably in more danger going home every day than you are and staying home, staying inside, 
than you are, you know, living your life in, in, in many ways. Absolutely. I mean, I can give you now, if you believe the reports that come out that say that, you know, you're protected with whatever the protection is, um, you know, if you have O positive blood, which I, I have, and I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail because I want to move on and talk about some football. Um, but, but I have that type blood and I've been exposed in the last 60 days to two different people that have been tested positive for the, the COVID virus that I've had in my truck with me for hours on end and I haven't caught it. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something, maybe there's something to that. Um, and, you know, and I'm not a, a 18 to 22 year old college football player anymore. Um, I turned 50 on Monday. Um, so, you know, I don't buy into it. I'm, I'm like you and Thomas Drew. I think this is just something that, you know, you deal with. Um, you know, if you get infected, you know, it, it's something you have to, you know, manage. But, you know, God almighty, I mean, we've had, you know, 2020 has been such a bad year with all this stuff. Um, you know, I think you and I and, and Thomas were talking about the election before we came on the air. Obviously, we're not happy about that. But, you know, I, I think people in a position to project positivity, they need to do that because th- th- there's so many people that are just so beat down by what the year 2020 has turned into. Um you know, let's move on and talk about some football stuff. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, and you made a great point uh, starting our segment with Miller Forrestall. He had been banged up. He'd been playing through it. But certainly he'd had been having his best year as a player uh, this year. That, that break should have really helped him. It should really help Brian Robinson. And now with the, the, the season-ending car accident to Trey Sanders with his hip and pelvis injuries, Alabama will need Brian Robinson more than any uh, than, than ever. It looks as though we may see, uh, uh, you know, Roy Dell Williams and, and Jace McClellan uh, at certain points of the season now, because if especially if Alabama hammers some people, but it's still mostly going to be the Brian and Najee show. I should say Najee and Brian, because Najee's been in, I think, the best back in the country. Travis Etienne's had a really good year, but he got shut down by Notre Dame. No one's really been able to stop Najee. As some may say he only got 12 carries for 43 against A&M, but I felt like Saban, Brian Robinson was playing well, and he just decided to give Najee some time off because he's going to need Najee to be fresh down the stretch of the year. But do you think this break, it was unintended to be two weeks, do you think this could refresh Alabama, Williams? Because I know you've been through a grind of the season yourself. No, absolutely, I think it could. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the Miller-Forrestall interview, you know, speaks volumes and also, you know, kind of educated me as a, you know, a casual Alabama fan. I had no idea that his, you know, dad made his living with a uh, uh, mixed martial arts gym over in Georgia. I enjoyed reading that story more than anything. But, yeah, absolutely it will. I mean, um you know, some people have had a chance to heal up. Um, they've had a chance to, uh, you know, get more therapy and, you know, go back out there and be refreshed. Hopefully, at, you know, at 3 p.m. Saturday versus Kentucky. Um, and, and you know, I, you know, I think that, you know, the thing, Drew, that bothers me more than anything is when you look at the way this college football season has played out, you know, you have to – I know we don't want to talk about this, but, you know, it, it just it amazes me on a on a week-to-week basis that we have to talk about these cancellations um, that, that, that take place. And I think they're absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, you and I and Thomas were talking about this before we started recording this. Um, you know, let the kids play. Um they're not the ones that are at risk. They're not the ones that are going to get the bad symptoms. 
um, you know, let them play and, and let this thing go on. Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody at work today, and they were like, you know, what happened to, you know, ESPN starting on October the 1st with, uh, you know, the college football playoff rankings? We don't even have that. Uh, yeah. You know, what, what, what's, what, what's going to be the, you know, the deciding factor on that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm with y'all. I mean, I agree with y'all about everything that we've talked about. But, you know, as a head coach, I mean, where does Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney or Brian Kelly, whoever, you know, where, where do you put the pieces up there of the puzzle for your team to stay motivated and, and navigate their way through this 2020 college football season? Well, and the one good thing about doing a show on a Thursday night, guys, is this is the Nick Saban show uh, that's on every Thursday for head coach. I'm, I'm able to monitor Twitter while we're doing this. Nick Saban just moments ago said, I can't predict if this three weeks off is going to – we were getting momentum and we were improving and getting better. I don't know how that's going to affect our team. But day to day, I'm not disappointed in how they manage practice. Because from what we heard, even though they didn't play last week, William, they had a practice slash, you know, scrimmage type situation on Saturday to continue to try to stay sharp and stay in the same routine. And as you pointed out, also allow certain individuals to get healthy. So Coach Saban's not exactly sure what he's going to see, but I think he likes how his team has prepared for Kentucky. Yeah, and I think he should. And, and you know, to answer your question, you know, I would like to try and put myself back in that same situation, let's just say, in 1992. Um, you know, there was – you know, I think you have to look at this thing. If you're an outsider looking in, you, you've got to kind of put yourself in that locker room. You know, whether it's Alabama versus Kentucky or – you know, the New England Patriots versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I can promise you, as I'm saying this, you know, 75% of those athletes are going to want to play that game. They're not worried about this pandemic. They want to get their, you know, I'm, I'm talking about on the NFL level. They want to make their money and, and, and produce on the field. Um, and so on, on the college level, it's, you know, hey, th this is our locker room. You know, this is what we want to do. But, I, you know, with, with everything that's going on in, in college football right now, and I think the focus of it, you know, as, you know, Drew, you and I and Thomas are talking about this, I really feel like the epicenter of what's going on in college football right now is the scandalous situation that's going on in Baton Rouge. I, I think that yeah. is, you know, take take the off-the-field stuff and, and talk about it, which it's not a real comfortable subject to talk about, at least for me, because um, I've seen both sides of this as, as someone that was immersed in that culture for five years. And, you know, we can talk about that if you want to. But, I mean, I, I really feel like this LSU situation that's going on down there in Baton Rouge right now um, is an explosive news story. Um, so, you know, we may want to touch on that a little bit. But as far as Alabama versus Kentucky, just, you know, get to Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. and kick the damn ball off and play the game. Well, I, all, the only thing that I will say about LSU is that, you know, Steve Moulton, who's my program director and boss, uh, along with Wes Neighbors at 97.7 The Zone, has compared it to the Auburn Tigers in 2011 when Auburn backslid from national champs to five losses to totally imploding in 2012 and the end of Gene Chizik. There's a lot of you know, uh, of, uh, of you know, parallels to, to, to see the, to the two situations. 
Auburn was having a lot of off the field strife uh, with the Cam Newton investigation and everything, and then the ramifications it had afterwards. And in same way with LSU. I mean, every, LSU just been having to put one fire out after another. We we know about the situation off the field that came out this week, but I'm gonna I, I don't you know I don't see how they you know we we talked to Ron Higgins on Talking Ball. He's been covering LSU for 40 years. He's he thinks they will be doing well to go four and six, and that and so and you, when you think about that, you're coming off a 15 and 0 season. I mean, and I know that Coach O has built up some equity, but he is going to be feeling some heat next year. It's going to be interesting to see if Bo Pelini's a one and done because uh, Pelini was his guy. Uh, they've had so many people opt out, so many people transfer. They're trying to get Darren Rosen, Rosenthal, their overrated left tackle. You know, back on the team, but I've never thought he was that good. So, and here, and the, the most interesting tweet I saw William all week, it's a record, they believe, that, that the Arkansas Razorbacks at home in Fayetteville this weekend against LSU are a one point favorite. Last year, they were a 42 point underdog, and that's the biggest swing in history. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll see a lot of that stuff, Drew, you know, kind of swung back around to, you know, the LSU side of things, um, you know, especially with, you know, the COVID concerns. Um, but, but when you look at what happened to that LSU program post, you know, Joe Burrow winning the Heisman and then winning the national championship, um that that could be the most classical one and done program I've ever seen. Mm. Um, I, I you know I know a lot of Alabama fans are angry about you know what happened in the locker room last year in Tuscaloosa. Um, you know after that loss to LSU, but you know I think you have to factor all the things into that before you get pissed off about it. You know it was. You know, Joe Burrow, it was, uh, you know, maybe the best player in, 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 in the SEC. It was, you know, a, a partially injured uh, Tua Tungavailoa. Um, there's a lot of things in play there when you start, you know, hitting the rewind button and, you know, talking about Alabama fans that were, you know, angry and pissed off about what happened. But take that game out of your, you know, memory bank and, 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 you know, start turning it around to 2020. Um, I, I think you really have to, you know, kind of look at the stability of both programs. I mean, do you want to get pissed off because maybe Nick Saban let one game um, versus LSU slip away? And maybe you have to, you know, put your confidence and, and focus into, you know, the guy that's overseen the, the greatest dynasty in college football over the last 15 years, which that's what I say um, Nick Saban has done. Um, but you, you go to, you know, this Saturday at 3 p.m. versus Kentucky, and we're still kind of in flux about when maybe that LSU game might be made up. I, I just don't understand why college football is in flux over this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, get the guys together, let them play, um, you know, stop penalizing these kids over politicized positions on both sides of the fence. And, and let them play the damn game. That that's to me is what it's what's important. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, they need everyone needs to get back to the grind and get back to playing. Uh, and I, I was going to bring Thomas Watts into the conversation. Thomas, the, the, one of the craziest things I've heard this week it involves the potential playoff. The, you know, Bill Hancock, you know, the, the head of the playoff committee. They've said that depending on what happens, if COVID affected who they chose, you know, the four teams, if one of them had to bow out, they wouldn't replace them. And to me, that's just asinine because you need to uh, to play the uh, college football playoff. If a team 
had to, you know, bow out. That's just an unfortunate situation. But I think that the games need to be played and and taking the uh, democratic way out, so to speak, and just giving someone a buy and not making them play makes zero sense to me. Well, so I've been on the record with this on this show that the I don't like I didn't like how Alabama made the playoff not having to play in the SEC championship game because they went in as a four and the top three seeds were essentially penalized for having better seasons. I don't think that I don't think that's right. And I think we need to take a long, hard look at the rules to make sure that something like that doesn't happen. Of course, Mac Wilson being Mac Wilson at the time also tweeted, thanks for the extra bye week. And I'm like that. Yep. Thanks, Mac. Anyway, this is the same thing. I, I can't. So, so let's let's play this out. Let's play the what if game because the best way I can illustrate my point is with a, a comparison to this year. Let's say that the top four teams are Alabama at one, assuming they win out. Ohio State at two, assuming they win out. Clemson at three, assuming they beat Notre Dame, and then maybe Notre Dame at four. Or Texas A&M at four. You know, you know, pick your fourth team. Why, why should Alabama be penalized playing that fourth team, the number four team, if Clemson has a COVID outbreak or Ohio State has a COVID outbreak? I think that's ridiculous. I think more than anything, there's got to be a way to get around that. The problem is there are so many chiefs in the kitchen now between Sankey and whoever's the, the Big Ten committee, Kevin Warren and Bill Hancock and the governmental entities that are extending their tendrils of control as far as they can over this situation. There are now so many you know chefs in the kitchen that, no, that every solution is going to be this least common denominator thinking that's just massively frustrating. Like, I get it. But at the same time, if I, let, 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 my attitude would be with the college football playoff, again, let's say Ohio State has a, an outbreak. Get the number five team in. Because think about it. You'd be a late sub, so you wouldn't have as much game planning done. You'd be demonstrably bet worse than number four. So number two or number three in this situation wouldn't have as much of a, an issue to go through. And you wouldn't – you would give the other two teams their game anyway. And should it be Florida at number five who comes in and beats a Clemson or an Ohio State and then wins the national championship? Honestly, that's how the cookie crumbles. And if we can get to the point where suddenly the debate is, well, you know, Florida's national championship deserves an asterisk because they were number five and then coronavirus happened and Clemson would have beaten Florida and blah, blah, blah. If Colt McCoy got hurt, you know, and then if my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. If we can even get to that point, that's a good, successful college football season in the middle of the pandemic. And that's kind of where I am. You have to figure out a fair way to do it with this pandemic backdrop. And as much as the ba- the pandemic drives me insane, it's not going to go away. So the notion of giving a top four team a buy is insane. Like, it's just insane. Because, you know, think about it. And I'll, I will go to my grave thinking this, and there will be Clemson fans that burn my cell phone down when I say it. But... Alabama wins the national championship the year that Deshaun Watson scored on the last play. If Sean Dion Hamilton is on the field for that last second pick play, Sean Dion and Hamilton. Eddie Jackson. Well, Eddie Jackson broke his leg, so we'll 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 leave that to the side. But Sean Dion Hamilton tore his ACL in a meaningless SEC championship game because Alabama had already made it. Yeah. Well, what happens if? Ohio State gets a bye because Clemson has a COVID outbreak. And then Alabama playing Notre Dame, Mac Jones tears his ACL. Or Dylan Moses tears his ACL. Are we just supposed to be okay with that? That's the sort of – that's the problem. And that notion of more games has to carry a ton of weight with the committee. Like, I understand that it wasn't Ohio State's fault that Maryland had a COVID outbreak. I get that. 
I, I'm, I'm there with you, but I don't understand how you make a six-game schedule comparison to a Clemson, which is going to be at 11 or 12, or an Alabama, which will be at 10 or 11 by the time this thing all shakes out. Because, you know, let's talk about that Ohio State team. Ohio State looked really good for the couple weeks we've seen them. i got to give them a lot of credit. But Ohio State without Justin Fields, who does want to run the football, completely different football team. And so Justin Fields is going to come in barely being dinged because the Big Ten's a flaming disaster because most of their coaches are god-awful. And Alabama's beat up. Like, like there's, there's so many things that go into this discussion. And I'm going to keep harping on this because I harp on it every year with the college football playoff. We absolutely need transparency with their methodology. They've never provided it. And they need to do it this year because otherwise people's asses are going to be chapped and deservedly so. And that begs the next question because of the, uh, of, uh, of the, of leagues uh, playing shorter schedules, like the, what I've been calling the uh, JV on my uh, show, the big 10 and then the freshman league, uh, the PAC 12, should there be an expanded playoff this year? Should they have gone to eight? Uh, Maybe so. But short answer, maybe, no, maybe but so. go ahead. No, I would say maybe so, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, I think there's always going to be the same suspects um, in, in that consideration. Um, you know, maybe it's Cincinnati, maybe it's Liberty. I mean, do you really want to include those teams into – the, the the same teams like a Clemson or an Alabama, um, you know, maybe you include Florida into that consideration um, on an annual basis. I mean, you know, that that would be kind of like what ten years ago when Appalachian State blocked the field goal versus Michigan. Um, you know, I don't know how you 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 know sort that out. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, this year, yeah, yeah, maybe Liberty and Cincinnati needs to be included into it, but the same two suspects are going to show up every year, and that's Alabama and Clemson. Yeah, and here's some interesting quotes from Nick Saban during his show. He said, we've had a lot less soft tissue injuries this year. He said, I do flexibility with the players before practice. And I would have never done that ever before. I mean, I lay on the ground and do everything that they do. I'm doing it because my hip hurts, but it makes it better. So it sounds like uh, Dr. Matt Ray and David Balu, he is very pleased with their impact, William, with this, uh, with uh, the shape of this team and how they've done physically. Well, as he should be. I mean, you know, when you look at what's going on, where those two guys came from and where they are now. If you look at what's going on with the Indiana football program, they're running through the damn Big Ten. Um, so, you know, when you know when we talk about this stuff, um, I think the the fair way to you know play it out is, um, you know, Nick Saban recognized that those two guys were at the top of the heap at what they do for a living in the strength and conditioning and in the, in the explosive um, speed and conditioning, you know, genres, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, but go back to, you know, what's going on with the, you know, on the field every weekend, you know, look at what Tom Allen's doing um, with Indiana on a, on an annual basis, it it, it it boggles the mind yeah. that a guy can go up there in a, in a you know one of the top football conferences in the country um, in the Big Ten and win on an annual basis in a place like Indiana University. So mm. you know Nick Saban's already pulled um, you know. Baloo and 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 Rhea, um, out of there, pulled him down to Alabama, and, and thank God he did. But I still think you have to point the finger back up to what 
Tom Allen is doing it as a head coach at the University of Indiana to be able to be that competitive in the Big Ten at a school that traditionally is not very successful. So, you know, kudos to Nick Saban for getting Ballou and, and Dr. Rhea out of there. But look at what Tom Allen is doing up there in the Big Ten. You know, he's taking guys that are three-star recruits and somehow having the ability to develop them into, you know, one through third round draft picks. I, you know, I think that's worth, you know, maybe even a whole episode of talking about what's going on right now. Yeah, it's crazy because Michael Penix Jr. is their quarterback at IU, and he is a former Tennessee commitment that the balls cut loose. And so the, and we all know the balls quarterback issues that they've had, but Indiana's been a remarkable story. They're 4-0, ranked in the top 10 in the country, and now we'll travel to the horseshoe, and we'll see if they can trade punches with Ohio State, who is thought to be far and away the best uh, team in the Big Ten. But if IU could pull this one off, they would start becoming serious uh, uh, college football playoff contenders like Notre Dame has after beating Clemson. But Alabama moving on to Kentucky, and William, this is the complete polar opposite of what they faced three weeks ago. A team in Mississippi State that's going to throw the ball around a lot, throw 50 to 60 passes. Now you're going to see 45, 50 runs out of Kentucky. They're a, a very physical team. They're going to challenge Alabama. The front seven, the run fits, and uh, getting off blocks is going to be very important this week. Yeah, you know, I think Kentucky, you know, has like a sneaky, really good offensive line. I think they're good on, on both sides of the line of scrimmage. You know, we'll see how they fit up with Alabama, uh, you know, come 3 p.m. on Saturday. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that you have to look at, the way that program has been managed and built, is that they're good on both sides of the line of scrimmage. So, I think this is going to be a good challenge for Alabama, but at the same time, I think it's going to be a, a much more of a mental challenge for Mac Jones, you know, to kind of diagnose what's going on out there and, um, you know, can they keep this clip up where they score, um, you know, 45 points a game, um, you know, versus a pretty good front seven defense. I would compare it. Um, you know, maybe more so to, you know, what they saw versus Mississippi State. And, you know, can they keep that pace up? But, you know, there, there's no doubt. I, I think Kentucky has one of the best offensive lines in college football, at least in the Southeastern Conference. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, you know, Nick Saban and Pete Golding matches up with that. Yeah, well, really well said, and I'll bring Thomas back into the conversation. Thomas, you've watched Kentucky some. Uh, Terry Wilson is a mobile guy. The mobility aspect has hurt Alabama in the past. He's not a great passer, though. These wide receivers have not been great. It doesn't seem to be a very good matchup for Kentucky against the corners uh, at the University of Alabama, who have played very well in Patrick Sertain, uh, the second, and also uh, when you look at uh, Josh Job, who's played very well. Now the safeties have got to keep developing for Alabama, and now they're going to be needed in run support probably on Saturday. But your thoughts on Kentucky offensively matching up with Alabama? Um, so short answer to your question is Kentucky's offense is god-awful. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. They, they, they've, they've struggled fairly consistently against any defense that has a pulse. Uh, you know, the, the Tennessee game, the 34-7 win, that was powered by turnovers. Kentucky probably should have beaten Auburn, but unfortunately they didn't. I, I just don't think this Kentucky offense has the firepower to keep up with Alabama's defense. Uh, Georgia held them to three points. Alabama's defense is not Georgia's, so I would expect Georgia to get in, or excuse me, expect Kentucky to get into the maybe 10 to 17 point range. But I just, I don't think this is, I think Kentucky is walking into a really bad situation for them. 
they haven't played a team with the kind of offense that Alabama has. They've played some defenses that are better than Alabama's, particularly in the case of Georgia. But it just isn't it, – it, it's another test for Alabama. Yes, I, I 100% agree with that. And Terry Wilson, because of his mobility, could cause some problems. But the problem is when you say he could cause some problems is you have to assume that Terry Wilson's going to have a Steven Garcia kind of game against the Alabama defense. And outside of that Steven Garcia 2010 game against Alabama, did Steven Garcia ever do anything that makes you think he could be Steven Garcia against Alabama? Short answer is no, not really. So I, I think it's a bad matchup. I think Kentucky's offensive scheme is not very creative. I think they don't really have the talent to compete on offense, and I think Kentucky's offense is going to really struggle. And Kentucky's defense is solid. They're not great. They're solid. But unfortunately, Alabama's defense is kind of, pardon the pun, like a wave, and and the defense is a sandcastle. The first couple of waves, the sandcastle will stand. Maybe a little bit later, the sandcastle starts to fall in on itself. And then there's one really big wave, and suddenly you have a mound that kind of looks like a castle, but is in fact just a mound. So I don't think Kentucky's defense will be able to hold Alabama down. I don't know if Alabama's going to cover because the number is 35, and anytime you get into the 30s for a line, I kind of want to run the other way, given how Nick Saban wants to play out football games. But it's just it's a bad matchup. Kentucky's offense is, is, is terrible. They are just terrible against a defense that has a pulse. And it's going to be like Georgia, except it's like J- Kentucky is JV Georgia. How's that sound, Drew? Yeah, and that, that was basically the matchup. That's why it was 14 and nine dogs in a snooze fest played in under three hours or right at three hours uh, in Lexington when Georgia beat them earlier. Uh, you know, but the one thing Alabama has to stay away from is turnovers. Uh, you know, that se- that secondary and the defense for Kentucky kind of thrives on that. You've got to protect the ball. Max got to. He's done that all year. Running backs, you know, got to, you know, can't put the ball on the ground. You don't want to give Kentucky any confidence. I don't think they're going to cover the, you know, I've seen it anywhere from 31, 32. You've seen 35. I don't think they'll cover that number. I've got 44, 17 Alabama, but I still think, and that was kind of what happened really in 2016 when UK came to Bryant Denny. They, 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 they were able to be physical, and they and they weren't afraid of Alabama, and they and they played hard, but they just didn't have enough. And I don't think UK with Terry Wilson is going to have enough in this game. I think they'll turn it over two or three times. I think Najee will get a hundred. I think Mack will continue to play well. Uh, these receivers, certainly Devontae Smith, uh, you want to see a big game out of him. Continue to have uh, Slade Bolden get comfortable, and of course John Mechie. I just think Alabama has got too many weapons. You got you're talking about Miller Forshaw even Brian Robinson. So to me, it's not a real good matchup for UK. And I think, you know, when, when you look at Alabama defensively, they're getting better. Hopefully if they tackle well, that's going to be the key. Get off blocks, keep Kentucky in, in second and third and long. And if you do, it's going to lead to turnovers and, and then punting the football quite a bit. So I just think overall that uh, Alabama should be the big favorite. I think they match up well, both offensively and defensively with this Kentucky football team. And, I think Alabama can be very impressive on the, you know, uh, Saturday afternoon inside Bryant Denny Stadium going into the evening. And uh, I'm going to be more interested, honestly, in seeing JT Daniels start at quarterback for Georgia. We knew this was coming. Now the excuse is, you know, Bennett's got a shoulder injury. So they've been working JT Daniels, who's been coming off a knee. I want to see. I was told all year that George Pickens was the best receiver in the SEC. He was going to drop 200 to 300 on Alabama. That, that, that some bitch, and I'll just say it on this podcast, has got 140 yards for the season. He does, that, That's a game for uh, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith. He hasn't done much. He's disappeared. I know the quarterback play hadn't helped him, but he also hasn't been there for obvious reasons because he's having issues off the field. So, to me, uh, he's an overrated guy, but I'm going to be really interested to see, uh, you know, what Georgia does against Mississippi State this weekend. Thomas with JT Daniels at quarterback. Uh, okay, you like okay. The thing about JT Daniels is he's a statue in the pocket, coming off a knee right. injury. So if Georgia's offensive line can give him a clean pocket, he could have some success. the The problem is you just don't know what you're going to get from 
that Georgia football team. Uh, the last time we saw them was a essentially a defense without its core being, uh, frankly, being blasted by a good Florida football team. Now, admittedly, they're playing Mississippi State, and all Georgia has to do is take their super athletes and rush three and drop eight, and someone will throw 15 interceptions, so it's not like it really matters. But, you know, if JT Daniels has a clean pocket, I think he can do some things. The problem is what's going to happen, the narrative is going to transform into, well, Kirby Smart should have played JT Daniels earlier, and maybe he should have, but against Alabama, Stetson Bennett didn't have a clean pocket very often, and particularly in the second half. And it's not like Stetson Bennett had a clean pocket a lot against Florida either because most of Georgia's points when the game was still in question were either off a long run or a couple of busted plays off of improving but still not awesome Florida defense. So, I mean, it remains to be seen. I think that Georgia will have success. Georgia fans will start screaming, why didn't you play JT Daniels against Alabama and Florida? And folks that are just sort of outside of it will be like, because you don't play a statue with a reconstructed knee against a team that will hit him over and over and over again. But they won't want to hear that. So we'll see, Drew. But, you know, whatever. Georgia is at this point is an also-ran. Congratulations on potentially your Sugar Bowl bid if you're that lucky. But, you know, so what? <laughs> like, like ha- have, have fun in your uh, – what, what was it that Georgia fans were, were crowing over last year? How, oh, have fun at the Outback Bowl, Alabama, or whatever the hell that – game was that Alabama beat the hell out of Michigan for well you know now the chickens have come home to roost so enjoy your trip to Jacksonville or or uh uh Shreveport or wherever the hell the lower tier SEC balls are you are no longer relevant to me well 1-800-19-A that's all I got exactly be 40 years without a national championship for Georgia who's got a trophy case that's just barely better than Vanderbilt's but they think they're elite but, you know, that's just what they've done their, their entire – they're the king of, of awarding themselves championships in August. But, William, before we allow – before we let you go, what real quickly, a couple thoughts from you on the quarterback change in Georgia and then your prediction uh, for Alabama and Kentucky. I mean, you know, I'm not really, you know, clued in on the, on the quarterback change at Georgia. I mean, I agree with Thomas. I, I think it's kind of – par for the course. I mean, that they've gotten to the point where, you know, they're desperate for some positive news. You know, maybe, you know, JT Daniels being the new quarterback gives them that, you know, little bit of oomph that they need or whatever. But, you know, based on what I've seen out of his career so far, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think you're still looking at a uh, – fourth and Kirby type situation with that whole program. And, you know, I I think, you know, that, that, you know, if you're a Georgia football fan, you know, you're really at a crossroads right now with, you know, did we really get rid of Mark Rick for what we're looking at with Kirby? Um, You know, I think that's the question that needs to be asked. I mean, how much further along, down the college football playoff road is that Georgia program is it you know any better today than it was in 2017 my answer would be no they're dead in the water um as far as Alabama versus Kentucky you know you know the stick a gun to my head I would say 48 to 14 would be mm. my guess yeah, we're we're along the same lines there, and I'll just say this: I said it on my show this morning. Connor O'Gara, he's a he's a he's a good guy. We've had him on the show Saturday down south. He doesn't think you can compare Rick and Kirby because Kirby went to the national championship game, and that's that's a fact. But he also said that that uh, with how many how how long Georgia's been in the top ten in the country in the top five, that Rick had never done that. Well, guess what? Rick still averaged 10 wins a year for 15 years. And during his time, the East was stronger than the West. And Tennessee didn't suck like they do now. So he had to go through more teams, and he was still very consistent. So, yes, you can compare Rick and Kirby. All right? 
So I'm sorry, there hasn't been much, you know, improvement there. It's 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 really a very very similar in what's happened. I mean, they've both done a good job, but neither one has won a championship. Now you just referenced it, William Fourth and Kirby. We he has choked in some big games and in the national championship game with a big lead at halftime, and then a big lead in the SEC championship game. Coach Rick won a couple SEC championships, nearly played for the national title in 2012. So, again, uh, there are some parallels there, and I want to see how Kirby finishes this season and see if JT Daniels is some kind of magic potion for them or do they continue to struggle uh, because he can't figure it out offensively, much like Will Muschamp, who recently got fired at South Carolina and has failed now at two SEC programs, uh, no doubt about that. But one more thought from you, William, before we let you go. I, I wanted to segue that to Will Muschamp. There's already talk about where will he end up next year. What are your thoughts on him as a defensive coordinator, and would you be surprised or would you support if he came back, uh, came to Alabama? Um, I mean, would I be surprised? No. I mean, would I support it? You know, Drew, People I, are I, I don't know. It, well, you know, I, you know, I've seen some instances where Will Muschamp has been successful. Um, you know, at Auburn, you know, at Texas, you know, you, you've seen some examples there. But I would personally like to see, you know, Nick Saban go out and get somebody out of his comfort zone. Mm, um, interesting. Do, do, you know, do I think Will Muschamp could be successful under Nick Saban as the defensive coordinator at Alabama? Yeah, I do. But I, I I would just like to see a fresh breath of air there, um, you know, not not a retread, um, you know, you know, you know the guys that I've seen, you know, be successful under Nick Saban that you know have kind of shocked me that, you know, they've been successful elsewhere. I mean, you know, Kevin Steele was successful. Um, yeah. You know, Jeremy Pruitt was successful. Kirby Smart was successful. Um, do I think that, you know, maybe Will Muschamp could come to Tuscaloosa and put a good product out there on the field? Maybe. But I, I would rather see Nick Saban go in another direction, maybe with a younger guy. And I know he tried to go, you know, with a younger guy and Pete Golding, but, you know, as we're, you know, knee-deep, you know, two years into the Pete Golding era, you know, I just don't see that thing having a happy ending. Um, I would rather see somebody else that has a, a proven track record, I guess, show up in Tuscaloosa and be that guy. And as I say that, I mean, it, it, that's all, you know, dependent on, you know, is it going to be a base three four? Is it going to be a base four two five? Is you know, you've got a lot of other things in play there to gauge whether or not the next Alabama defensive coordinator, whether it's you know Pete Golding or Jeremy Pruitt or Will Muschamp or Charlie Strong for that matter. Um, I just think there's too many moving parts to you know make a prediction on that standpoint. Well, William, that's a very interesting thought uh, and, and thought-provoking. Uh, he went outside the box with Pete Golding. It hasn't worked, but as you said, perhaps you go to the, you go to the well again uh, because right now Jeremy Pruitt is employed. I think I still think he's been the best DC. I would love to have him back, but he's still probably going to get another year with the Tennessee Vols. Huge game for Tennessee against Auburn this weekend. They need to stop the bleeding. It's going to be interesting to see how Auburn comes off this three-week layoff. But we appreciate you for joining us, man, and uh, great thoughts again, and we look forward to catching up with you uh, next week after the Kentucky uh, game and hopefully another big win for Alabama. Thank you, Drew. Good talking to you and Thomas. Thank you. And uh, that was William Redfish Barger. And, Thomas, I know you're still with us here. I wanted to get your thoughts and your prediction on this Alabama-Kentucky game. Uh, and then I was going to run another scenario by you that, we just saw go across Twitter uh, that uh, I think you'll be very interested in. 
So, I think I think Alabama's going to have a little bit of rust. I th- okay, so I think the strength of the Alabama football program has been consistency and routine. I think that's been the hallmark. Like, if, if you wanted to, you know, call it the process, call it whatever, it's just the, the underlying current is the consistency of the Alabama football program. And when you have a coronavirus situation come up like this and you're not playing for three weeks in the middle of the season – most of these players haven't ever gone through something like that. And that's to be expected. Not, not a huge, not a thing for them. But I expect Alabama to have a little bit of rust to knock off against a decent Kentucky defense. And again, going back to my Sandcastle waves analogy, it doesn't really matter. The Kentucky defense will slow down Alabama a little bit, but it doesn't. It, it, Alabama will do enough to score a, bu- score a bunch of points. I don't think Alabama's going to cover. I think Alabama's going to win... Uh, Give me forty-one ten. I, I just like, and the only reason I'm saying only forty-one ten is because you know now Nick Saban realizes that Alabama's probably looking at a situation where they don't get a break going into the SEC championship game due to game cancellations, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes much, 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 much more critical to get those second-team guys as many reps as he can find. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of score? Well, it simply means that the Alabama Crimson Tide are going to take their foot off the gas and send in rotational players (laughs) earlier if they get up three or four touchdowns. And, you know, I have no problem with that. I really don't. So I think Alabama's going to win. I think they're going to win comfortably. And then we're on to the next one, Drew. Absolutely. And I'll say this. I, I, I've get, I gave my pick. I, you know, I, I, William and I were on the same wavelength. He said 48-14. I said, uh, you know, uh, 44 uh, you know, 17 was about was, was where I had it. So I, I just think Alabama's going to win impressively. Uh, and, you know, but uh, but uh, what, what I was going to, uh, you know, go over with you, Thomas, sure. is is the fact that some interesting information from Nick Saban, uh, you know, uh, that uh, he just uh, revealed on his coach's show on Jalen Waddle. He said, we're very encouraged. Everybody thinks he's doing really, really well. He told me that he wants to try to come back and play but we're certainly not going to let that happen until he's fully 100% healthy. But that Nick Saban put that on the record, Thomas, I find very interesting. And if Jalen Waddle were back for the college football playoff, to me, that enhances Alabama as a huge favorite. Well, honestly, I'll... Uh, it would be a miracle in my eyes, but it would be tremendous. That, that, that's what I was going to say. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, that's how that's been my take. I, I I wish the young man nothing but the best. He has done everything and more he could do for two and a half years for this football program. And if he can't make it back, he can't make it back. All right. Now that we've got the, the disclaimers and the caveats out of the way, let's talk about what it means for this Alabama football team and make an assumption up front. The Jalen Waddle that Alabama would get on January the 1st against whoever they would play in the college football playoff is 95% Jalen Waddle that we saw for the first half of this year. Well, the problem for the opposition is that it's going to look eerily similar to what Alabama did to Texas A&M and, frankly, what Alabama did to Georgia. There's not a good enough defense in college football to hold a Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Mac Jones, Najee Harris, and that offensive line group down for four quarters. And if you go back and look at the commentary after the, uh, the Georgia game, you know, that, that week after where Alabama won 41-24, the, the, the dagger point for the Georgia Bulldogs was that 90-yard Jalen Waddell touchdown. I'd respectfully argue that it was actually the Malachi Moore interception as Georgia was driving back to potentially take the lead again, but let's not split hairs. 
that's what Jalen Waddle does. Slade Bolden's a great player, but Jalen Waddle can on command blow the top off a of defense. Just on command. Put him on a put him on a a sluggo route, a sluggo route, and he'll probably beat his guy one on one. That changes how you defend this Alabama offense, and it makes it even more deadly. That's not to say that it can't win a national championship without Jalen Waddle, but it absolutely becomes easier because your toolkit just gets one of, you know, arguably the most electric player in college football back. You know, your offense is going to take a step forward when that happens. So should it come to pass, I think Alabama's already the favorite to win the national championship, given Clemson's struggles and the ascension of Notre Dame, but the op- the the kind of remaining open question that Notre Dame beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence, even though I think that doesn't really matter with how that game went. No one's going to actually say that because Trevor Lawrence sells tickets and puts butts in seats. I think Alabama would be even more of a favorite, but it remains to be seen, Drew. If the rich get richer, I would pick Alabama over, you know, Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State. I'd take them by a touchdown easy. Jalen Waddell, I might take them by two. It's just this Alabama offense is so devastating to everybody. And, again, let's talk about the three, the three groups I just talked about. Notre Dame has a legitimately solid defense. Uh, Clemson's defense may be solid if the middle of the defense gets healthy, but right now it's awful. It is awful. And Ohio State's defense, we saw them against an 0-4 Penn State team and a Nebraska team that has looked decidedly meh and Nebraska was able to move early. So the question's out on all of those guys, but given the losses, particularly in the case of Ohio State on defense, it's just unrealistic to think they're going to be as good as they were last year, and that Ohio State defense still struggled with Trevor Lawrence and a very deadly Clemson offense. So if the rich get richer, I think Alabama should be the clear favorite, but right now I think they're fairly clear as it stands, Drew. Really is. And final thing I wanted to say before we wrap this up is I, 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 I'm just once again so drawn to Tua Tungavaloa. I enjoy watching the Miami Dolphins play, even with the limited weapons they have offensively. They're going to play in the snow in Denver this weekend. It's a dangerous trap game. You know, Drew Locke's banged up. They got Jerry Judy. Uh, but Tua and the guys are 3-0 and since he started. Uh, he's elevated them. They're only a half game. They could be tied for first place after the weekend, playing great defense. He's getting more and more comfortable offensively, leading that team, not turning the ball over just like at Alabama, making some outstanding plays. I'm really happy for him with a remarkable recovery, and I can't wait to watch him again on Sunday. It's become must-see. I hope we get the game in our area because I don't have the Sunday ticket you know, function right now. But it's just been great to watch him, uh, great to watch him continue to grow. And, Thomas, I know you watch the NFL as well and you play fantasy football, but uh, a, just a really great start for Tua Tungo by Lola. Yeah, certainly. You know, a couple of good wins. And the, the Chargers were – the Chargers are that fantasy football team, and I'm a big fantasy football player. They're that team that they look so good and you so want to take their players and they're going to do so much for you. And then they just don't do anything. That Rams win was huge, though. Uh, Tua didn't have to do very much except, you know, manage the game because the Dolphins' defense came up so big. But so what? Like, Tua Tagovailoa was getting wins in the NFL. And if you had said that he would even be playing this year after what we saw against Mississippi State, I'd have said you're crazy. So the only thing left, frankly, Drew, is give him some weapons outside of uh, Gesicki and Devontae Parker. Uh I can tell you, Savian Ahmed or whatever ain't it at running back. So, or I don't. I, I'm gonna I butcher. I butchered the young man's first name. I'm sorry. You know, a compliment to Devontae Parker would be great. I mean, shoot. The reason the Bucks' offense is so good is that you have so many weapons. The reason the Chiefs' offense is so good, you have so many weapons that can do so many different things. I'm not saying that Tua is gonna need that. I'm not even sure that. Brian Flores, the Dolphins head coach, wants that for his offense. I think he's more a defensive first guy, which is great. But, you know, a couple of pieces here and there, and it's pretty exciting times down for the Dolphins. No doubt about it. It really is. But I want to wrap up BAM's radio for tonight. We hope to bring you an episode. We hope to be back on schedule on Sunday. We will see. 
the University of Alabama. Hopefully we'll get a big win over Kentucky to stay unbeaten and set up the Iron Bowl. Hard to believe. It doesn't feel like Iron Bowl week's about to be here because of this crazy season, but it is. Alabama going to look to avenge the loss in, in Jordan-Hare Stadium from a year ago. Uh, the Tigers are trying to get a win at home against Tennessee to avenge a loss two years ago, which is really the biggest uh, you know, win for Jeremy Pruitt in year one. Uh, but we'll break the Kentucky game down, look ahead to the Iron Bowl. Uh, but I want to thank Thomas the Wizard Watts, William Redfish Barger. It's been an outstanding show. Uh, we were sorry it was later in the week this week, but, you know, the circumstances, the craziness of, it, of, the, of COVID-19 kind of forced this. And I'm glad we did wait because we, got, we brought you some more information. We brought you some takes from Nick Saban. We hope you enjoy the show, and we look forward to uh, hopefully re- recapping another huge Alabama win and also basketball season getting ready to start next week as well for NATO and the University of Alabama. And congratulations to Kyra Lewis, Jr. I was at that draft party last night making history, the first Madison County basketball player we believed ever going the first round of the NBA draft, number 13 to the New Orleans Pelicans uh, with Zion Williamson. What a great situation for Kyra Lewis and his family and NATO developing a first-round point guard, the second straight one because of Colin Sexton now with the Cleveland Cavaliers. But good night, everybody, and roll tide.